Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today I want to talk about disinformation and misinformation on the internet and what kind of problem that really poses and what we collectively can and should do about it. So that's why I'm talking to Alex Stamos, who was Facebook's chief security officer for three years. He left in 2018. He's now the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory. Welcome, Alex. Hey, Peter. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on. Um, I'm always interested in this topic and I always want to talk to you, but I'm talking to you this week because of two very different, but I think related stories in the news. One just about everyone knows about. On Sunday, thousands of people stormed Capitol buildings in Brazil. It looked a lot like their version of the January 6th riots. And there was an immediate sort of discussion about what role internet platforms like Twitter and Telegram played in that. And then the next day, something that I think most people didn't pay attention to was a scientific study published in, I think it's called Nature Communications, mm -hmm. that looked at the effect of Russian interference on the 2016 election, specifically on Twitter, and essentially concluded that all the misinformation and disinformation the Russians tried to sow on Twitter had essentially no impact on that election, had no impact really on anyone's views or actions. And I think these two things are, are related. So I have a general question. Are, are we collectively in 2023 overestimating or underestimating the impact of misinformation and disinformation on the internet? So I, I think what has happened is there was a massive overestimation of the capability of mis- and disinformation to change people's minds, right? Of its actual persuasive power. That doesn't mean it's not a problem, but we have to reframe how we look at it as less of something that is done to us and more of a supply and demand problem of that we live in a world where people can choose to seal themselves into a information environment that reinforces their preconceived notions, that reinforces the things that they want to believe about themselves and about others. And in doing so, they can participate in their own radicalization they can participate in in fooling themselves, but that that is not something that's necessarily being done to them. And I think that is what hopefully is changing. And I think that's what that that paper actually says. That you know, the papers by Josh Tucker. He's a guy I have a lot of respect for. I've I've we've worked with him on a number of things. Nature Communications is a really high end journal. You know, really good peer review. And we could talk a little bit about the caveats of the limits. But what kind of the basis was is that the Russian disinformation content on Twitter in the 2016 election was something that was effectively requested by and mostly seen by a relatively small number of people. So instead of thinking of disinformation as something that you can push out to affect wide swaths of people or to change politics somewhere, it's something that if there is a supply of it, then if there's also demand, that once you have that supply and demand match, that that might help people b b put themselves into that, that circle. Um, but on the, specifically when you talk about Russia in 2016, the amount of the content was just so small that the effect of that specific stuff was pretty minimal. So if you wanted to believe that Hillary Clinton was the Antichrist or was running a child sex ring out of a pizza place in Washington, you were going to get that information whether or not the Russians were, were seeding it for you. Similarly, if you thought, you know, Donald Trump was terrible, I mean, they weren't, they, they, they were basically acting on behalf of, of, of Trump, but it, it, manifested in different ways. But this sort of the idea of the filter bubble being imposed upon you by the algorithm and that the Russians could interfere with that, this undercuts that idea. Uh, and you don't really have put a lot of st stock in it. Right. So you and I talked about this in 2019. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to do a little bit of a end zone dance here. In the yeah, we, we talked in 2019. <laughs> we were focused on political advertising at the time on Twitter and Facebook, but right. we were touching some of this stuff as well. Right. The kind of political media has massively over pivoted on two things. One was the internet research agency content 
on Twitter and Facebook. And That's the, the Russian, the Russians, the Russian troll farm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the second is, you know, Cambridge Analytica and the kind of a capability of those kinds of ads to really be effective that without any real evidence that that was a significant portion of the, the success of Donald Trump in 2016 was ascribed to those mm-hmm. two things without any evidence. And now, uh, you know, in 2019, I, I cited a study back then and study after study after study has actually supported all the empirical evidences that those kinds of things are, were not as effective. The two things I think that are interesting to talk about and for which we still have much less data is one on the use of political advertising by American political actors itself. And then also when you go back to 2016 and then, in a variety of cases around the world, things like the hack and leak um, campaign by the GRU, which is totally different, right? This is one of the things is people. That's WikiLeaks. That's WikiLeaks. Right. WikiLeaks, DC leaks, Mm -hmm. just her emails, right? Like the ability of, by using actual hacking capabilities of the Russian government to change the way people talk about Hillary Clinton. But that is a much harder thing to measure for which we don't have a lot of good evidence, but just by looking at the scale of the discussion was probably more effective than whatever the troll farms could possibly be. And the conclusion of our conversation in 2019 was, if you're concerned about any of this, what you really ought to do is protect your own data and make sure that you're not being hacked and go change your passwords. Uh, we can talk more <laughs> right. about that. But, but well, I wanna... I mean, that's, that's one of the only things individuals yeah. can do. Yep. If, if you're a political party, don't have a totally insecure email server uh, mm-hmm. that's sitting out there, which is you know something that actually has uh, promulgated through on kind of the cyber defensive side, political actors around the world have gone a lot better since that time. But I want to go back to Brazil because we now have a playbook for whenever something awful happens, whether it's January 6th or what we saw in Brazil or things like the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand where someone does something bad and we say, what role did the internet play on this? And sometimes it's a very tenuous connection or it's more ambient. And in the case of both January 6th and and in Brazil, it seems pretty evident that the people who are organizing those events were using platforms uh, to actually put that stuff together. And then for presumably before that, we're seeding sort of the ground for this disaffection and, and, and promulgating the idea that the elections were stolen. I mean, that's, again, the, the, the parallel. So can we hold both things in our head at the same time that we've both overestimated the, the effect of, you know, Russians playing around um, and, and sort of reinforcing our filter bubble versus n- state and non-state actors using the Internet to make bad things happen? Yeah, I think so. I, I, from my perspective, I think you have to look at every situation separately, and you have to look at actual evidence of, of what's going on. And all these situations are very different. The Christchurch shooting is a very different situation than what's going on in Brazil, right? Mm-hmm. What's going on in Brazil is a lot like January 6th, in that the the interaction of platforms with what's happening there is that you have kind of the broad disaffection of people who are angry about the election, which is really being driven by political actors. Mm-hmm. So for all of these things, Almost all of it we're doing to ourselves. The Brazilians are doing to themselves. Americans were doing to ourselves. We have political actors in our political sphere who don't really believe in democracy anymore, who believe that they can't actually lose elections. And they, yes, they are using platforms to get around the traditional media and to communicate with people directly, but it's not foreign interference. And it, especially in the United States, direct communication with your political supporters via these platforms is like directly kind of first amendment protected, very much compatible with American ideas of free expression, that that is used to drive the overall dissatisfaction to get people in the streets. And then separately from that, in a much smaller time scale, you have the actual kind of organizational stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. And and that's those are the things you have to kind of separate. That you've got the general, it was stolen, let's protest, I'm angry. And then the other side is both on January 6th, we have all this evidence coming out from all these people who've been arrested and their phones have been grabbed. And so you can see Telegram chats, WhatsApp chats, iMessage chats, um, Signal, all of these real-time communications, and that you say the same thing in Brazil. Um, and, and for that, I think the discussion is complicated because that is where you end up with a straight trade-off on privacy. That the fact that people can now create groups where they can privately communicate where nobody can monitor that communication, you know, without like really extensive kind of spying capability means that they have the ability to put together what are effectively, you know, conspiracies to try to overthrow elections. And that happened both on January 6th and that definitely is happening in Brazil. And in the Brazil case, it's WhatsApp because WhatsApp is by far the most important platform in Brazil. 
So the through line here in all of this, from my perspective, is that after one of these events happens, we collectively, many of us collectively say, hey, Twitter or Facebook or maybe Apple, you let this happen. What are you going to do to prevent it from happening again? And sometimes the platforms say, well, that, this wasn't our fault. Uh, mm. Mark Zuckerberg famously said this was kind of crazy uh, after the 2016 right. election. Um, and, then, and then Gerald did that again, yeah. like making the exact same mistake of, oh, no, that January 6th stuff existed on making some like incredibly broad statement that could be right. easily disproved. And then there's some sort of acknowledgement, oh, mistakes were made. We should do better. And then often what happens is, you see the platforms trying to sort of do whack-a-mole and solve the last problem. A new problem comes up. And then in, and in solving and trying to solve the old problem, they then create new ones. And I'm going to further complicate it because I wanted to bring <laughs> in the pandemic into this where you had the platforms at the beginning of the pandemics. We all said, what are you going to do to help make sure that people get good information about how to handle this novel disease um, and how to react to it? And they said, well, we're not going to make these decisions. We're not We're not epidemiologists. We're going to follow the advice of, of the CDC and governments around the world. And in some cases, uh, that information was contradictory or wrong, and they've had to backtrack. And now we're seeing some of that play out with the release of the Twitter files, where people are saying, I can't believe that the government asked Twitter to take down so-and-so's tweet or account because they were telling people to go use ivermectin. I think the most generous way of viewing the way the platforms are taking this is the one I happen to agree with, is they were trying to do the right thing. They're not really built to handle a a pandemic and how to handle uh, both good information and bad information on the internet. But there's a lot of folks who believe, and I think quite sincerely that they really shouldn't have any role in this at all, that if people want to stand up and say, go ahead and and try this horse dewormer medicine, what's the worst that could happen? Um, They should be allowed to do it. So you have this whole stew of stuff where it's unclear what role the government should have in working with the platforms, what role the platforms should have at all. And, and, And then back to sort of my original question, how much of this should we be trying to fight period or should we just say look this is like weather or this is like climate change and it's it's a fact of life and we're all going to have to sort of adapt to this reality yeah I, I think you've summed it up really well which is the fundamental problem is that there's a real fundamental disagreement and sometimes inside people's heads itself that people are inconsistent on what responsibility they believe information intermediaries should have for making society better and again people are generally not They'll believe that if something is against their side, that the platforms have a huge responsibility. And if something is on their side, they should have no responsibility, right? It, it's extremely rare to find people who are consistent in this. And it's not easy, right? There's We don't have like a good historical precedent here because we are living through a revolution where the movement of data has gone to zero marginal cost. And as a result, communication capabilities that used to only be in the hands of the mass media, right? Of radio stations, of television stations are now in the hands of individuals. Right. And you could regulate a radio station and television station. There's licenses for them. I mean, we didn't generally in America do much of that, but, but there were rules about what you could and couldn't say, and you could lose your license literally if you, if you violated them. Right. And so we, you know, as a society, we have gone through these revolutions, these information revolutions, you know, the the creation of the printing press created hundreds of years of religious war in Europe. Right. And so nobody's going to say we should not, we should uninvent the printing press, but we also have to recognize that allowing people to print books created lots of conflict. And, and so we, we work out what the responsibilities are. And, and I think that's what we're in. From my perspective, I think that the, the responsibility of platforms is to try to not make things worse actively but also to resist trying to make things better, right? If that makes sense. No. That, what does resist trying to make things better mean? Meaning, I think there's a, a impulse of, you know, for all the kind of Twitter files stuff that's going on, and I think we can get into the details, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of overblown claims, yep. and there's a lot of, honestly, driving abuse. You know, a lot of the Twitter files stuff is about driving abuse at individuals who work in this, including myself, like I'm getting death threats and stuff. And I've only had like a marginal part in this. But the legitimate, I think the legitimate complaint behind a bunch of this stuff is that Twitter was trying too hard to make American society and world society better, to make humans better. What Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and other companies should focus on is, are we building products that are specifically making some of these problems worse actively, Mm -hmm. right? And that the focus should be on the active decisions they make, not on the passive carrying of other people's speech. And so- if you're Facebook, 
your responsibility is if somebody's into QAnon, you do not recommend them. Oh, you might want to also storm the Capitol. Here's a recommended group or here's mm -hmm. a recommended event where people are storming the Capitol. That is an active decision by Facebook to make a recommendation to somebody to do something. That is very different than going and hunting down every closed group where people are talking about ivermectin and you know other kinds of folk cures incorrectly. That if people are wrong, going and trying to make them better by by hunting them down and hunting down their speech and then changing it or pushing information on them is the kind of impulse that probably makes things worse. And I think that is a hard balance to get to. And there's a bunch of parts of these products that kind of fit both of those molds of, is it an active or a passive action? But that's where I try to come down on this of be careful about your recommendation algorithms, your ranking algorithms about product features that make things intentionally worse, but also draw the line at going out and trying to make things better. And so like the great example, one thing everybody's spun up about the Hunter Biden laptop story, mm -hmm. Twitter and Facebook and doing anything about that, I think overstepped because whether the New York Post is does not have journalistic ethics or whether New York Post is being used as part of a hack and leak campaign is the New York Post's problem. It is and not the, Facebook or Twitter's the quick problem. quick summary there was right before the, the 2020 election, this very dubious looking story about Hunter Biden's uh, laptop popped up and it had all sort of fantastical elements and lots of things around it didn't seem right. And the New York Post writers who wrote it didn't put their byline on the story because they couldn't right. vet it. And Twitter and Facebook, Twitter more so, but both of them, in reaction to the 2016 hack and leak effort, said, all right, well, we've seen this playbook before. This is bad people trying to put out bad information. And even if we don't know if that's the case, we don't want to be wrong about this. So we're we're not going to strike it from the Internet, but we're going to demote it and make it harder to find. Um, right. And it turned out to be a reasonably accurate story in the end. Yes, it, right. And it was. It, and so I think there's, again, you can hold two ideas here. One, it was incredibly suspicious. Um. You know, a lot of the people complaining about it believe the Russians did nothing in 2016. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the over pivot here is, oh, the Hunter Biden laptop story was true. Therefore, Russia never tries to influence American politics, which is just complete BS, right? Like I have seen the evidence with myself, with my own eyes of Russian activity in 2016. And so um, you have to, it, but in a situation like that, if if you are, if we were being attacked by the Russians, that's not Twitter's responsibility to solve the problem of, we have a, a free media and the free media can, if they get handed stuff by Russians, then they can publish it. Right. And that's just, that's the first amendment. And that's like American society. And that's not something Twitter can fix. What Twitter could fix in that situation was to make sure, okay, we're, we're not going to recommend the story or we're not going to make it trend or something. And so I think that would be the reasonable limit. And even that, you know, with the Musk is pushing back against the idea that Twitter should have those limits. But I think that's the line to draw, right? That like there's a editorial responsibility of a platform on the stuff that they are pushing. But then for most speech, you have a, a much lower bar where it's really about direct harm. And so if like, if you have, you know, direct threats to people and if you have bullying and abuse and obviously like child exploitation and stuff, that is absolutely responsibility even for passively carrying content that you should stop. But for this big middle ground of mis and disinformation, of untrue, of propaganda, that's an area where you should probably limit your activity to only things that your, are your active responsibilities as a platform. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. And we're back. 
something that, that people used to say in tech and they stopped saying it out loud um, for the most part after 2016. And when they do say it now, they usually causes a problem. Adam Mosseri said a version of this. He's the head of Instagram to me a couple of years ago. And I think Elon Musk is basically saying this now, which is, look, when you make a new thing in the world, ideally you're trying to make it so it, it's good. It's the benefit of the world. But there are going to be trade-offs, pros and cons. And some, you know, you make cars and cars do lots of great things and we need them and they also cause lots of deaths. Um, and we live with that trade-off and we try to make cars safer and we build roads and uh, you know, better roads and airbags and better tires. But we, we live with the idea that that there's going to be downsides to this stuff. Are you comfortable with that framework in general? It's not whether I'm comfortable or not. That's just the reality, right? Uh -huh. Like is any, any technological innovation, you're going to have some kind of balancing act. And again, like these are the the part of the problem is that our, our political discussion of these things never takes those balancing those balances into effect. If you are super into privacy, then you have to also recognize that when you provide people private communication, that some subset of people will use that in ways that you disagree with, in ways that are illegal, in ways in some kind in some cases that are extremely harmful, right? And so that is, I think just the reality is, is that we have to have these kinds of trade-offs. And these trade-offs have been obvious in other areas of public policy, right? You lower taxes, you have less revenue, you have to spend less, in theory, right? Um, those are the kinds of trade-offs that in the, in the tech policy world, people don't understand as well, and certainly policymakers don't understand as well. So that's how you'll end up with the same senator saying, privacy, 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 oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this, I can't believe you're doing that. Also, I want all of the speech controlled in a way that's consistent with my political views, right? It's like you can't have both of those things. Um, and so like, I just think that's the reality of the world. I don't want to say what is to be done because it's too big. But what, what are the practical limits for government uh, to, to be involved in any of this? Again, post-2016, lots of time in hearings, lots of time with people proposing various sort of anti-big tech regulations. There are now lawsuits that could have long-term effects on the platforms, but no real legislation went through and no mm. real legislation is going to go through, at least for another two years. But even if there was uh, a sort of consensus in government about the need to do something is there are there practical things that government can impose in the US and other places around around platforms? So in general, the government in the United States is very restricted by the First Amendment of any kind of uh pushing of the platforms to change speech. Now that members of Congress just completely ignore that, right? Mm -hmm. They believe that they can pressure the platforms however they want. But for the executive branch, you know, again, the Twitter files had a bunch of stuff of interactions between the FBI and Twitter, and there's no smoking gun there. What you have is, I think, pretty reasonable communications of the FBI saying, this is the kinds of things we're worried about Russia and other countries doing. Um, and, uh, but then not getting involved on specific decisions like Hunter Biden, what they do do is they do send over, hey, we believe these accounts are controlled by foreign agents, right? And, um, you know, there, there have, there continues to be every country in the world trying to manipulate social media in real time. It's not discussed as broadly anymore, um, but it's happening all the time. You know, right before the election, there was a coordinated takedown by Twitter and Facebook that we then got the data set for and we did a bunch of research and found some more stuff out there that turns out to be Russia, I'm sorry, turned out to be China and Iran. And most of it was against the Republicans. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I think we're also part of the problem is that our political discussion is stuck in a 2017 mode where the idea is that foreign disinformation helps Republicans and hurts Democrats. And that, that's not true. There's lots of players in the world who have different ideas. One of the groups the Chinese created was an anti-Marco Rubio group in, in Florida. And so I think it's appropriate for the government through its, you know, counterintelligence capabilities, investigative capabilities to say, hey, Here's 50 accounts on Twitter that we believe is run by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to try to uh, attack Republicans. And then the companies have to look and make their own determination of whether they believe the government's claim is appropriate or not. And by but the way, the, the, actual, the, US, the U.S. government engages in this as part yes. of its foreign policy as well, right? They yes. Try I, to, I, so I'm going to give a shout out. Yeah. yeah. So if you go to io.stanford.edu, that's our webpage for the Stanford Internet Observatory. And we have a report called Unheard Voice, which is all about... Um, the Department of Defense, specifically Central Command and Special Operations Command, hiring contractors to do Russian-style disinformation on Facebook and Twitter and some other platforms. So yeah, absolutely, the U.S. does this too. I, in the U.S. case, I think that's totally inappropriate. Um, like 
we should not be doing this. We should not be running these kinds of influence campaigns. Um, it's also really stupid. Like, even if you don't believe like I do that it's in incompatible with American ideals, it's just dumb because the entire DOD campaign for which I am sure they spent millions or tens of millions of dollars to a contractor got less online engagement than our first tweet thread announcing our report. Right. So mm -hmm. like, it's just stupid. And now what we see is our report keeps on getting cited by Iran and China and Russia and other governments of like, Oh, look, America does it too. So it's okay for us to do it. So yes, everybody does it. Um, and it, I think it's appropriate for the government to be involved in like the identity of foreign agents, but they shouldn't, they are not, and they should not be involved on the content of speech by Americans. Um, now around the world, that's different. And in Europe, I think is where the rubber's really hitting the road. The Digital Services Act creates a bunch of new responsibilities for platforms. It, it's not incredibly specific on this area, but there will be, that. that is where from a democratic perspective, there will be kind of the most conflict over responsibility. And then you see in Brazil and India and other democracies that are backsliding towards authoritarianism, um, you see like much more aggressive censorship of political enemies. Um, and that that is going to continue to be a, a real problem around the world. Over the years, the big platforms, Google slash YouTube, Facebook, uh, and Twitter built pretty significant apparatuses. You, you, you work for Facebook working on, on security stuff, which really was tackling a lot of this stuff. Pretty significant number of people. And we now seem to be going through a real-time experiment where over at Twitter, where Elon Musk has said, ideologically, I, I don't think Twitter should be moderating really anything beyond actual criminal activity. And beyond that, uh, it costs a lot of money to employ these people, and, and Twitter can't afford it. I'm getting rid of just basically everyone who was involved in disinformation and, and moderation. And ideally, I'd like robots to handle all this, and I'd like them to do as little as possible. And we don't know what the effects of that are going to be. But what do you imagine it's going to What do you imagine the effect of Twitter's sort of just abandoning its efforts to do any kind of moderation will have? Yeah. So like you said, I mean, he has massively cut down all kinds of trust and safety teams, including child safety, including counterterrorism, including things that are actually about illegal acts. But the entire team that used to track online influence campaigns that prevent countries from messing with each other, the entire team's gone. So effectively, it is open season now. If you are the Russians, if you're Iran, if you're the People's Republic of China, if you're, like you said, if you are a contractor working for the Department, U.S. Department of Defense, it is open season on Twitter. Twitter is absolutely your best target. Again, like the quantitative evidence is that we don't have a lot of great examples where people have made massive changes to public beliefs. I do believe there's some exceptions, though, where this is going to be really impactful on Twitter. One is on areas of discussion that are thinly traded, so to speak, right? So one of the issues that the Internet Research Agency has, and that came out in these this quantitative study of IRA activity in 2016, is that the the battle between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump was the most discussed topic on the entire planet Earth in 2016. So no matter how much, you know, for $150,000 in ads and 100,000 pieces of content was nothing, absolutely nothing compared to the amount of content that was on social media about the, the election. And so it's just a tiny, tiny, tiny drop in the ocean. On areas where that are not core, I think it is possible now for countries to really have an impact. So we have, I shouldn't talk about the results too much because we're in R&R uh, uh, with a journal, but we have a paper about the effectiveness of disinformation and we chose a topic that Americans don't really care about, which is Saudi Arabia and Yemen. And in those areas where there's not like a preconceived notions, I think there can have a lot more impact. If you actually look at Russian behavior over the last 10 years- When you're saying impact on, on American beliefs on what's going on yes. in that conflict? Yeah. Yes, because it's like it- most yeah. people can't find either of those countries on a map. Yeah, Don't know right. there is a one conflict. article about Donald Trump is not going to change your mind about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. One article about you know Saudi Arabia's war is might be the only thing you consume on it, right? Um, if you look at Russian behavior in the last decade, the number one topic is actually domestic, right? Most Russian disinformation is about supporting Putin. It's it's domestically focused. The number one topic globally is Syria, actually, is that they've spent the last decade propping up Assad and doing much more subtle things than just throwing out troll stuff. They create all these fake journalists. Um, they were able to plant lots of articles in like lefty publications. So a bunch of anti-war publications had articles 
basically supporting Assad, saying that that is the anti-war position, that is the progressive position. And it turns out all that stuff was written by the GRU, not by real lefties. And that kind of behavior, I think, actually can be effective in those topics for which there's not a preconceived notion and you have the ability to try to shape what is, from a culture war perspective, if you're on the Team Blue or Team Red, what is your position on this topic? The other area where I think it's going to be really effective is in attacking individuals and, and trying to harass individuals. This is what we've seen a lot out of China, that if especially if you're a Chinese national and you leave China and you're critical of the Chinese government, there will be massive campaigns lying about you. There's a, a woman in Australia who has been the target of these horrible lies about her personal history and her sexual history and all this kind of stuff. And it's just the vo the fact that the volume is continuously saying these horrible things about these people to try to suppress their speech and to drive them off the internet. And I think that is what's going to happen on Twitter, is that if you take a certain political position, you're going to end up with hundreds or thousands of people saying you should be arrested, that you're scum, that you should die. They'll do things like send photos of your family without any context. They'll do you know, over and over again. And this is the kind of harassment we have seen out of QAnon and such. But now you could just, instead of having a bunch of 10,000 real followers, because there's nobody minding the store at Twitter, you could probably just create 10,000 accounts. And I think that Twitter is going to continue down that direction of any situation in which you take a, a certain political position that uh, massive troll farms have the ability to try to drive you offline. So I think about this every time I see a story from one of my colleagues pointing out that such and such disinformation exists on YouTube or Twitter, et cetera, about whatever the topic is. And they're all obviously well-intentioned stories, and they're pointing out something that's wrong. And I keep thinking, you could write these stories in perpetuity, and Twitter or YouTube or Facebook may crack down on a particular issue, but it's it's you're never going to get out of this cycle. And I wonder if if our efforts aren't misplaced here and and that we shouldn't be spending time so much time trying to point out this thing is wrong on the Internet and instead doing something else. But I don't know what the other thing is. I don't know what we should be doing instead. Can you help guide me through what I ought to be thinking about and anyone <laughs> listening to this podcast should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. Like, I saw something I didn't like on the Internet is the. Is it really, you know, you have I, to I, file I, by Friday. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't, easy. and I don't, I don't, I'm not, I mean, there's people who are doing really serious work on this, you know, about very serious stuff. Uh, you know, anytime there's any news item, again, like uh, uh, the way uh, um, anti-abortion clinics are disguising themselves as, you know, basically Planned Parenthood and then propagating right. on, on Google. That's a real story. You should absolutely cover that. But it seems also inevitable that that will happen and that Google will belatedly get to it. And, and this will keep going on forever. So I don't mean to dismiss right. it. I just don't know what to do about it. So I think, one, if you're going to write that story, you should have a model in your head of what do you want the platform to do that is consistent with topics in which you agree right? That like the level of, you know, effectively censorship, like that people argue that the term censorship should not be used for private platforms. But I think you can argue that if you have four or five massive companies that are controlling 90% of online conversation, that it is a type of censorship for them to make a decision. And we just have to embrace that, that in some cases that is necessary um, and appropriate, but we shouldn't be afraid of the word. And you should have in mind, okay, I want Google to take these steps and I'm okay if they take that those steps against somebody who had the same kind of behavior who I politically agree with. That is something you never see, right? Like the New York Times is never consistent on online speech stuff. Um, and so like that that is what one of the things like if you're gonna write those stories of I saw something bad online, that you're actually consistent about what you want the outcome to be. And it's also consistent with your position on things like privacy, because the the again, you can scream and yell about privacy all day. And then also say, I want all speech controlled in a way that's consistent with my position on abortion, like you said. Um, I, I think the other thing that people need to look at is they, they need to look at, I'd like to see more stories about the specific attacks against individuals. I think the, again, I think what we're, we're moving into a world where effectively it is Gamergate every single day, that there are politically motivated actors who feel like it is their job to try to make people feel horrible about themselves, to drive them off the internet, to, to suppress their speech. And so that is less about broad persuasion and more about the use of the internet as a pitched battlefield to personally destroy people you disagree with. And so I'd like to see more discussion and profiles of the people who are under those kinds of attack. We're seeing this right now, Scott Gottlieb, you know, from Pfizer, um, is, is showing up in these documents and he's getting dozens and dozens of- This messages. is the former FDA commissioner under Trump, 
who, I, and I will admit to being surprised by this during the pandemic, turned out to be an astonishingly good source of a very clear thinking and communication about what was going on with the pandemic, what the likelihood for vaccines would be like, what when the vaccines rolled out, how effective they were, um, and became really a, a trusted source. And now through the Twitter files is being presented as uh, an evil, right. an evil person. Right. He's a board member for Pfizer. Mm -hmm. That was on like every, if you saw him on CNBC, the Chiron said Pfizer board member, right? Mm -hmm. So like this is a completely disclosed conflict, but he went out and he told the truth as he knew it at any time. Like you said, one of the things we're living through with the, my colleague Renee DeResta has talked about this. Zainab Tufeki has written about this at length. The pandemic was this, was this crazy incident in that we lived through the science in real time, right? The fact that we got to vaccines so quickly is just a miracle, right? It is an absolute miracle. But the difference of what happened is all of the scientific research happened in public in pre-published PDFs. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you get the ivermectin and the HCQ and all this kind of stuff is from initial scientific research that maybe doesn't pan out in the long run. And so by watching the sausage get made, people could choose which parts of the sausage they agreed with. And, you know, Scott, I think said something mostly, most of the things he have said has turned out to be correct. Maybe there's a couple of things that he wasn't totally correct about, but the result is what is happening is now anti-vax grifters are taking documents from inside of Twitter that they're being given by Elon Musk because of his culture war leanings or whatever, for whatever the hell's going on in Musk's head, I'm not totally sure. He's not giving this to like neutral conservative journalists. This isn't the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. This isn't the National Review even. These are like, people who make money because they're anti-vaxxers and they get people to sign for their Substack, he is giving them limited internal emails. And then that's being used to drive, to try to drive this guy to change houses. Like, and I know people, I have friends of mine who are selling their houses right now because they've been mentioned in the Twitter files who have had to go into hiding because the amount of death threats and abuse they get is incredible. And so that is, I think the next, we are now living through that era. Is, is there a clear bright line? I, I'm sure the answer is no, but is there a clear bright line that the platforms could could lay down and say, look, I don't care whether you think um, athletes are suddenly dropping dead from myocarditis as an effect of uh, the vaccines. You cannot issue death threats or say I should kill Scott Gottlieb. I mean, I, I'm sure they all have rules saying you can't say that, but it, it seems like it's, it's do, hard to Twitter's, enforce. Twitter's no longer enforcing, effectively. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that is the immediate thing that has happened on Twitter. It is the amount of abuse you can send people in their DMs and individually has gone up. And then, like I said, because they're not minding the store anymore on troll farms, if, if you were one professional actor and you have a shelf full of SMS, you know, um, there was a great photo of a troll farm being discovered in like Russian occupied Ukraine and photos of like what it looks like of having dozens and dozens, hundreds of phones and thousands of, of, of Sims. If you have that capability, you could probably make one person's life hell if that's what you decide. And so I, I think that's, if, if you're, you're asking for story ideas, I think that is the world we're moving into between kind of QAnon, Gamergate, political trolls, all this stuff is converging into the kind of normal model is if you disagree with certain groups online that you have to be ready for to possibly have to sell your house. I'm still stuck on the idea of sort of like the platform's view of their role in this. And I think old people like me and Elon Musk who grew up with the internet, who, who remember before the internet and then saw I think the we're internet. called geriatric Geri millennials. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm fully Gen <laughs> X, but, um, you know, the internet. Uh, I'm on the border. I'm the last year of Gen X, but all my siblings are millennials. I don't understand how that works. The internet showed up and it was obviously a good thing. It was obviously good to get more sources of information. If there was bad information, it didn't matter that much because there was so much more good information you were being exposed to. And you just sort of let it all get sorted out. And I think a lot of people who run big internet platforms had subscribed to that theory and had been forced to sort of say, all right, we're going to have to take a more active role in this. And I think, again, I'll just assume they mostly want to do well, either because they actually want to do well or it's they're required to for business or legal reasons. But I'm pretty sympathetic to, to people who really do distrust big pharma, right? Big science, mm -hmm. big government, and say, why should I take you at face value and you tell me these vaccines are okay? I mean, I, you know, and plus I've seen these reports where 2,000 people have dropped dead. And, you know, and, 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 you know, once you dig into it, it looks sketchy. But the, the idea of having a natural distrust of authority and the idea that someone on the internet is providing you with a look at something you wouldn't see normally through, through conventional media, 
I can understand why they would think that way. And I can absolutely understand that way, thinking that way. If the U.S. was thoroughly run by a political regime, I absolutely opposed. I wouldn't trust it at all. How do we sort of balance that impulse to say, I don't trust you, government or Facebook or government working with Facebook to say this is what I should or shouldn't be looking at. Um, and you say this is a death threat, but I'm just expressing a political opinion that I believe this. I believe that Henry Kissinger is a war criminal because he killed all those Cambodians in 1971 through the bombing campaign. Right. And I should be able to say that that's political speech. And by the way, it's not only is it political speech, it's a good thing for me to be able to say that. How do we balance all of that? Yeah, I mean, super hard. So on the what is a threat versus a political statement, this just came up that there was a ruling by the the Facebook oversight board where this huge document going back and forth on whether or not you should be allowed to say death to Khomeini effectively, mm -hmm. right? Um, that, you know, I think you and I and probably most of the people listening to this are supportive of the protesters in Iran not big fans of the Islamic Republic, right? And so, you know, our preconceived notion is that those protesters should have a very wide swath in the kinds of things they should be allowed to say while protesting some very legitimate human rights problems. Is it appropriate for them to be able to say death to Khomeini? And there's this whole analysis of like, well, in Persian, it kind of means down with versus actually death and all this complicated stuff. And and so like, whatever your position is, the oversight board actually uh, had put the content, forced the content to go back up. Um, but whatever you come down on that, if you read something like that, you you end up understanding the spectacular complexity of trying to figure this out, especially in 80-something languages around the world. So again, it comes back to me of the position of the company should be they don't make things worse, right? And that they should first start with the products where they are putting content in front of people. So advertising, they have a lot of responsibility for. Recommendation algorithms, they have a lot of responsibility for. Ranking algorithms, they have responsibility for. The impact of ranking algorithms has been overstated over and over and over again, non-empirically, and the actual empirical evidence has come back and say that ranking algorithms are not actually the heart of every problem in the world. So it's kind of like another simple media go-to is that because you know Facebook has a ranked feed that that makes the world worse. Well, it turns out that you look at the actual evidence and it's, it's very mixed. But that is an area where I think legitimately the companies have a responsibility to understand what they're doing. On the passive speech by individuals, I think you have to have a, a much higher bar before you act, right? And, um, you know, things like direct threats and, and activity against individuals to try to drive them off is the kind of thing that you should think about. Now, if you have 10,000 people trying to abuse, you know, Gottlieb or, you know, a, a game gaming journalist, your only option is not turning off the accounts of people who are doing that. You can build product features that detect that somebody's under attack, that downright content, that mute content. You're saying you don't, you don't, you, it's not a binary option. You don't have to turn them off. You have other options. Yes. Right. And and that, and that is when you go back to your discussion of the, the standard media article of, I saw something on the internet I don't like. The outcome of that, the the implication of that is almost always, I want this content wholly gone and not looking at the gradation of all the different things that can happen. This is another thing that came out in the Twitter files was all the gradations that Twitter had on people who were who were borderline on their policies or violated their policies, but not to the point of which they wanted to shut them down, where they're like, okay, great. Well, we're not, we're never going to recommend you. That is totally reasonable. In fact, you know who agrees with me that is also Elon Musk. Musk had a whole thing about freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach, which he ripped off uh, and owes my colleague Renee some money for that. But um, that's actually a fine position, right? That like, we're going to allow speech to exist, but we're never going to recommend it. That is the kind of gradation that you want to give yourself as a tool. So I think if I was at if I was still at the big companies, I'd be focused on the individual harassment and the product affordances to prevent that. I'd be looking at my definitions of what abuse looks like when it's part of a coordinated campaign. When you have a QAnon person say this person is bad and they know that the outcome of that, you know, Libs of TikTok is the best example of this, of they don't have to say abuse this person. That is just the assumption mm -hmm. of if you're posting somebody's TikTok. Here's our target. Go. They don't have to say here's, it. Here's your target. So that you should look at those accounts that know they're driving abuse and take action against them. And then build in those shades of gray and then live with the fact that people are going to complain about I think one of the things that's changed in the companies is they've realized they can't win, right? There was like in the 2017 to 2020 range, the idea of like, oh, if we just do better, we can win. And the, the result is any content moderation decision you make, it will piss off the other side and you'll just, and, 
and the people who are pushing to do it, it will never be over. And so I do think what is what is swung back to kind of the middle is the companies being like, we're just going to ignore the political noise and the media noise because no matter what, the New York Times is going to hate us. The Twitter files are, are rife with problems, um, both intent and execution. As you said, there's been blowback in, in lots of different ways. And I can't say I've read all of them in part because they're, they're produced in weird and odd ways. But I'm fascinated <laughs> to see the discussions between people at internally at Twitter, externally from the government saying, here's a problem. Is this a problem? How do we handle it? Is there a practical way for the platforms to be more transparent about what they're doing? I've always been fascinated when Twitter or Facebook would take down an account. And the yeah. government and the reporters would call up and ask, and they say, we can't comment on that. And then very often, sometimes on background, they'd sort of nudge and wink you about sort of where things were going. But I would thought, why don't they just say, we took down Milo Yiannopoulos because he did this. Mm-hmm. And this, these are the uh, YouTube, same thing. We're, we're, we're downranking or banning this person because of these following actions. Why, why can't they be more explicit about that? Or why haven't they the, been more yeah. explicit? So they, they absolutely, I think that is absolutely one of the directions we should go is, is the platforms can be much more transparent about one, what content is on the platforms two what is trending and what is being seen, you know, the, the research, this, this paper that we're talking about and other kinds of research is really hard to do because getting the data out of the company is extremely hard. And there are some proposals. So the Digital Services Act in Europe has some responsi- some requirements here. It's going to take a very long time to figure out exactly what those are based upon how the European system works. My colleague, Nate Persley, uh, wrote this thing called the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. It had bipartisan support in the Senate. So, you know, the U.S. could just pass that act. It is a totally neutral from a content perspective, but it creates a bunch of responsibility for the companies. Effectively, what, what I'd like to see if Musk really cares about transparency for Twitter, the two things I asked for was one, Twitter could declare if we ever get a request from any government agent around the world to take down content, we will publish it, right? So if, if you're really worried about the FBI and the deep state, then you should, every time anybody who's any government actor asks Twitter for anything, they could publish I it. I think in some national security cases, they're they're legally prevented from doing that, right? Well, so for, for, for requests for data, yes, right? But- even on the national security side, the a national security letter should not be able to censor content. Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, on the data, and you can have gag orders both on the unclassified and the classified side of data access, but at least in the United States, there's no power for the government to order content to be taken down and especially not to gag that, mm-hmm. right? So one, they could publish all that communication. What I'd be interested in right now is the communication Musk has gone from his Saudi partners, um, the, the communication he has gotten from Brazil, from both first Bolsonaro and now from Lula's government, because Brazil is a huge market for him. Um, and a place where he gets all his battery uh, content uh, for Tesla. I'm especially interested in all communications between People's Republic of China and Elon Musk and Twitter. Uh, so you could publish all that. And then the second is they could have a database of, you know, for the last 30 days, here's all the content we've taken down. And here's what's called the disable code. I'm not sure exactly what's called in Twitter, but inside Facebook, it's called the disable code, which is effectively you take something down, you mark it, why was it taken down? And that's a very important piece of data because it's then used in training sets and quality assurance and all that kind of stuff is you could say, okay, this was taken down for hate speech. This was taken down for this, taken down for that. And then you could provide access to that database, probably under NDA or some kind of controls to certain researchers because there are legitimate privacy issues about data that's been deleted. But you could absolutely do that. And they have shown no sign of doing that. In fact, when I proposed that, Elon Musk said that I ran a propaganda platform, which ended up with me getting abuse for a couple of days. I, so, I, I but saw, yeah, I I, I'll repeat that. it. Like, if Musk really cares about this in a neutral way, publish all communications of governments and publish all of your decisions along with why that decision was. What made. was the thinking and not in 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 again? You were at Facebook for years uh, on this stuff. What was the Facebook? What was the thinking in not providing any detail or confirmation when an account was taken down or any action was taken down? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of things here. One is you got to remember these these companies make very little money per user, mm-hmm. right? And so from a customer service perspective, they suck. Yep. That That is just a general problem with these large companies is like if your account gets taken down, you know, uh, Cashmere Hill wrote a very good series in the New York Times about people having their accounts taken down for child sexual abuse, which is totally reasonable, but these people were cleared and they couldn't get them back. And so there's partially a privacy discussion here. And part of it's just like a customer service discussion, which is there's nobody you can talk to at Google when Google turns your entire life off. There's nobody you can talk to except a New York Times reporter to get your account back, right? And so one, I think part of it is they don't want to encourage people to appeal and to have this back and forth and all that kind of stuff because at the volume at which you're talking about, you can't have a 
real adjudication process for the millions as of much money as they, they make they can't down. practically solve that problem no yeah. right the Facebook makes more decisions in an hour than probably the Supreme Court has made in its entire history, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just, you just can't adjudicate like every single individual decision. So I think that's part of it is they don't want to encourage that. Part of it is there are legitimate privacy trade-offs on at least providing this data publicly. You could obviously tell people privately why decisions were made, but providing like a database, it turns out GDPR, the, the interaction of GDPR with any data that's been deleted is really complicated. I do think that that's something that could be solved, but the companies would have to focus on it and they'd have to go to you know the data the Irish GPC specifically and then go get a letter and stuff like that. But you know there are there are some things that have to be worked out there. Um, I think partly it, the the reflex. I mean, certainly Facebook. The reflex of Facebook all the time is let's not break into jail. Let's not create any kind of PR story. And so they're not reflexively secretive, reflexively deny everything, reflexively try to stay out of anything. And as a result, you end up creating distrust in the public and distrust in the media and, and you know the effect of that, right? So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, those are the reasons driving it. I don't think any of them are valid. I, I do think I would love to see, you know, if Twitter's not going to do it, I would love to see Facebook to publish something like that. Uh, I'm going to give you the last word. For the people listening to this podcast, they're concerned about the state of the internet, the state of the world. They don't run anything. They don't run Facebook. They're not in government. What are And beyond checking on their own personal privacy to make sure their accounts haven't been hacked, what can and should someone do? So, I, I mean, I think a key thing everybody needs to do is to be careful with their own social media use. You know, I have made the mistake of retweeting the thing that tickled my fancy, that fit my preconceived notions, and then turned out not to be true, right? So I think we all have an individual responsibility to, if you see something amazing or radical or something that makes you feel something strongly that you ask yourself, oh, is this actually true? And that's not just for stuff that's online. That is for media stories, right? Like that is the other thing I think we're living through is kind of the, the outcome of these big kind of culture war moments where the, the major media outlets went the wrong direction a little bit. And for you and I, maybe we move past that, but people on the political right in the U S get stuck on it. Like the, the Covington Catholic situation, mm -hmm is exactly the kind of thing that is still talked about widely is why you should distrust the entire media establishment. This is the, um, the, the kid who looked like a bratty kid wearing a MAGA hat. It looked like he was being dismissive and insulting to a person of color in Washington. Right. And everyone jumped down his throat. Right, right. And I admit, I was on that. I was like, oh man, like, look at this this little asshole, right? Like, this is exactly the kind of kid I don't want my kids to grow up to be. And then it turns out that the truth was much more complicated, right? When you saw. And so I think in all of those situations, people need to stop and wait. And then the hard part is if you see members of your family doing that, is having a hard conversation about that with them, right? Because part of this is also, like, there's also good social science evidence that a lot of this is a boomer problem, right? That, like, the a lot of both on the left and the right a lot of this stuff is being spread by by folks who are, you know our parents generation and and so having that conversation with their parents of like just because you see it online it might not be true is the the hard thing that people need I to wish do. I could say that it's a boomer problem but I've got two a teen and a preteen and 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 uh I don't think they're necessarily more savvy about what they're consuming on the internet than their their grandparents but mm, I'm, tr I'm trying to work on it uh Alex Namos You know what's going on with teenagers though is it seems like they're they're consuming less serious stuff Right. Yes. That's like one of the reasons TikTok is popular is it's just stupid, fun stuff. And there's very little in the way of politics. That's true. But that's a different problem. All right. Alex Stamos, I'm going to let you go. Um, we should do this more often. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks, Peter. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free. That's zero dollars. Still the same. Thanks to Travis and Jelani for editing the show, producing the show. And thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>